I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Eleanor Henderson. Cotton County, Georgia, 1930. In a house full of secrets, two babies, one light-skinned, the other dark, are born to Elma Jessup, a white sharecropper's daughter. Accused of her rape, fieldhand Genus Jackson is lynched and dragged behind a truck down the 12-mile straight, the road to the nearby town. In the aftermath, the Jessup family and the community of Cotton County are forced to contend with their complicity in a series of events that left a man dead and a family irrevocably fractured. Eleanor Henderson's sophomore novel, The Twelve Mile Straight, is an expansive historical narrative that will captivate readers in its immersive world of shared beliefs, secrets, histories, and complicities. The Twelve Mile Straight, published by our imprint Echo, is on sale September 12th. We have Eleanor Henderson, whose book, The Twelve Mile Straight, comes out in early September. Eleanor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about, about The Twelve Mile Straight, was the setting and the atmosphere of the novel. So it takes place in Cotton County, Georgia, in 1930. And as a reader, personally, that's not necessarily a, t- a time period or a place of the country in which I would, I would naturally gravitate as, as a book to grab off the shelf. <laughs> but I have to say, um, that's probably, first of all, my own deficiency as a reader, but um, I have to say I was truly, truly captivated by the world you created in The Twelve Mile Straight. Um, I found it particularly compelling, um, so much so that for the last, the morning that I read the last 75 pages, I actually missed getting off of the train at World oh, Trade Center, yes. and I had to go back uh, to Jersey City and then double back to come back because I was so wrapped up in, in the ending. So what was so compelling for you about setting the novel um, in Georgia, setting it at that time period, and sort of coming up with this, this epic tale of, of this, these two families in this community? Well, I'm sorry about your subway stop, but I have to take that as a high compliment, having done that myself many times. So thank you for reading the book um, and reading it so richly. Um, My father was born in Georgia in a small town called Fitzgerald in the south-central part of the state in 1932, and he was born to a family of sharecroppers. So I was really drawn to that time and that place, especially because my father is 85 now. He's a little younger than 80 when I started writing the book. And I was just so amazed by the life that he'd lived. You know, he'd just gotten an iPhone and um, was very adept at, you know, navigating social media. And yet he was a boy who would ride a a mule-drawn cart to church back in the the 1930s during the Depression. So at that point, um, just sort of coming out of our own Great Recession, I was really interested in, in what life looked like then. And it was difficult for me to kind of picture um, and so I had long known that I wanted to set a book in the South. I'd always been drawn to, to books set in the South and, and also was sort of ready to confront and, and explore my, my own Southern history. 
I was born um, in Greece and grew up in Florida, which isn't really the deep south, um, but spent quite a bit of time in Georgia growing up. Um, that's where my father's family is. Much of them still live there. So I spent a lot of time there and, and was drawn to Georgia, but didn't, um, didn't necessarily feel um, that it was my material um, until I began to think about that period, really setting a story in a time that um, my father still remembered pretty keenly and grown up hearing these stories about him, um, you know, catching a skunk in a rabbit trap or his older brother telling him that if he carried a potato in his overalls pocket, it would turn into a rock. You know, these sort of sweet um, childhood stories uh, that took place in that part of the world on the farm. But then, you know, as I began to think about the historical relevance of that time and place um, and the, the deep role that Georgia played in upholding Jim Crow, you know, I began to think about the darker contours of the story, too. Yeah, and it, it was, it's really interesting because part of the, part of the story involves twins, babies who, pre- who are presented to a community as twins. Right. Uh, one is light-skinned, the other is dark-skinned, and, and they are born to Elma Jessup, who is a white sharecropper's daughter. And it's, you start out early on talking about the community uh, in which the Jessup family lives and how they are, how the people of Cotton County, Georgia, are a people of belief. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about why belief is so central to the community as a whole, but also to, to some of the particular characters, um, like, uh, like Juke, Elma's father, or, or Nan, um, her. Uh, is it fair to call her a sister? Because they're kind of, they're, I mean, they're not blood relation, but they're, but they're close. They're, they are very, very close. They grew up as sisters in a certain way. Yeah, they consider themselves to be as close as sisters. Yeah, you know, the the idea of belief was one that I really struggled with in writing this book because I don't really hold strong beliefs. You know, I think I'm a pretty flexible person, and um, it's hard for me to make up my mind about anything, let alone really cling fiercely to a religious belief or an ethical belief. Um, but it seemed to me that that was really one of the, you know, cornerstones of this community. It's a fictional county. It's a fictional town. But I think that, you know, listening to my grandparents' stories about uh, living in that time and that place, the church was everything to them. Uh, the church was right across the street, and um, after my uh, my uncle died in a house fire during the Second World War, my grandmother was in that church every day. And so it, you know, provided the kinds of things that, you know, that were pretty foreign to me in terms of holding a community together. Um, and the kinds of um, you know, the difficult kinds of lives that, that these characters would have had, I think, would have made that church really central. The church isn't really central to the book, but this um, this really fierce belief is. And you know, one passage in particular talks about the fierceness with which the whole community sort of believes together. Even the black families and the white families have a belief in their town itself and in the strength of that town, a really fierce loyalty that, to that town. Putting apart, it comes from um, the idea that the Civil War really isn't over, um, that you know families are still very much um, living in that moment where the, the South was defeated. And so there's a real distrust of the enemy, a real distrust of outsiders mm-hmm. by both blacks and whites in this town. Mm-hmm. And um, 
some of that belief is around the church and some of that belief is just in sort of believing the narrative that is being put forward by um, the white family members in this case who who are explaining uh, who the children's fathers are at the beginning of the story. Yeah, because yeah, because you, you write, so they, meaning the white community, so they believe that the babies were twins. Because if they didn't believe, then they didn't believe Genus Jackson was one of the daddies. They'd have to believe that the daddy was someone else. They'd have to believe that a mob of white men killed a black man for no reason, and they couldn't believe that. Except the black folks, they knew what their white neighbors were capable of. They believed in the same things as the white folks believed in, except they didn't believe in the white folks. Right. Yeah, and that, that to me was an interesting moment to sort of think about how there are, I guess in some ways, two halves of this community, but also different differences differences among and within those those halves as well. Yeah, that was important to me um, to create some nuance within each uh, community while also acknowledging that they were very mixed in some ways and also acknowledging that, you know, that there were some sort of general uh, characteristics of each of those groups. Um, and so in that, that moment um, that you just read, you know, some of the uh, black community members are a little kinder toward uh, Genus Jackson, who is the black man who's lynched at the beginning of the novel, who has come in on a freight train. He's just jumped off of a boxcar. Um, but many of them are very skeptical of him. And so I think, you know, his appearance in the town sort of tests the town in many ways. And where the traditional narrative might have been that, you know, he was uh, beloved by all. In fact, I think, you know, there would have been many people who were skeptical of him because they didn't know what his motives were. They didn't know who his daddy was. They didn't know what his history was. And those are the kinds of things that I think would have been very important to many of the people, although maybe not all in that community. Yeah, and two people that have varying degrees of intertwined history are Elma and Nan. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about their relationship. Sure. So sometimes I feel like I need to see a family tree in front of me. Do you know what? I actually <laughs> I actually started, I got about halfway, oh, maybe it was a little bit, maybe it was more like, a quarter of the way through and I just I actually had to make myself a little diagram oh. it's not it's not the prettiest diagram but I did <laughs> in order to try and keep everyone in my head I did have to come up with a little a little map for myself well I had many maps too that were, <laughs> uh, revised over the years as I was working on this book and I thought about including one in the in the book but the whole you know, mystery in the novel is right. it's about family and paternity, so I thought that would maybe defeat the purpose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, uh, Nan is, has been living with uh, the Jessops for most of her life. Um, she was born, in fact, um, on the farm uh, to her mother, Ketty, and her father, Sterling. And uh, her mother was a midwife um, who delivered many of the babies in the county. And her father left when she was about a year old. He was said to uh, go up to Baltimore to work in one of the steel mills. And she's sort of half waiting for him to return for her. And her mother, Ketty, um, dies when she's 12 years old. And so at that point, she's taken in by the Jessup family. She's grown up on a shack on the 
sharecroppers farm. Um, they were sort of hired as field hands by these sharecroppers. So they share the same land, but they don't live in the big house until um, Nan's mother dies. And then she's invited to live in the big house with the, the white family, including Elma, who's uh, uh, four years older than she is. So she's always been like a sort of big sister to her. So that dynamic was very interesting to me. Um, I, I, I've heard, as I've been telling people about this story, that these kinds of arrangements weren't uncommon, right? Mm-hmm. Where we were, the white family would be very close to um, the black family that's working side by side in the farm, and in this case, uh, they they really became a family under one roof. Um, and another component of their relationship is that Nan can't speak. Her mother cut her tongue out when she was about a year old, and she isn't able to speak. And so one of the things that Elma believes it's her duty to do is to speak for her. And so they're really inseparable, um, except for when Nan begins to take on her mother's work and she goes out into the world and begins to deliver babies also. She really depends upon Elma, although maybe Elma believes that she depends on her more than, more than she actually does. Yeah, because one of the one of the interesting things about Nan is that um, most people think that because she cannot speak, she is also pretty dumb. Um, but in fact, she's she's quite smart, and she is able to communicate because she can she can write. Right, and that's you know a secret for part of the book that she keeps from many of the people in the book, mm-hmm. um, except for Alma, who's taught her how to write. Um, when they're confined to quarantine when they're kids, and it's a secret that they keep from everybody because they both know that power that, that she wields in, in her literacy. And so uh, Duke, uh, Alma's father, doesn't know that Nan knows how to write, um, and yet she communicate to Alma that way, and they have other means of communication as well. Um, but it was very interesting to me to think about um, this young white woman who believes it's her duty to speak for this black woman, and yet she often misinterprets mm-hmm. what it is that Nan is trying to say. And of course, um, as much as she loves Nan, she can never really know what's in her heart. And so it was important, I think, to explore both of their points of view pretty deeply to see the ways that they really um, are like sisters and that they uh, communicate the best that they can, but they're still always, you know, a story sort of left untold. Right, yeah, and and you brought up paternity, and and we, we won't we won't spoil it for anyone what what, what happens. But um, the novel is deeply interested in identity and all kinds of identity. I mean, paternity is, is probably um, the most obvious, given given the case of the, the twins, Winston and Winna. But identity also comes into play in thinking about race, class and gender as well. So why was identity a key preoccupation for you to explore through this community? Well, it's hard for me to imagine really exploring a world without looking at it through the lens of identity, right? I mean, what else do we have? We're entirely defined by um, those aspects of our identity, identity or our class and race and, and gender. Um, our abilities, uh, if you think about Nan's uh, disability, her inability to speak. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't thinking very intentionally about looking at those, you know, moments of intersectionality, but looking back at it now, um, you know, I think that you can see how those different kinds of forces play out really, really uh, in a key way. And I think I've always been interested in paternity, you know, even with my first book when I was um, exploring adoption and belonging, in part because my older brother was adopted. 
when I first started writing this book, this will answer the question, I hope, in a kind of sideways way, um, I really was interested in this idea of, um, of double paternity, and uh, which is called heteropaternal superfecundization for well, all of you science nerds. Okay, that's, that's my vocabulary word for the day. <laughs> you know, I, when I was pregnant, I was addicted to these TV shows about, uh, about fetal development, and I watched a documentary about this concept. And I began to think, you know, what would it be like to grow up in a house or in a womb with somebody who is supposed to be more like you than anybody else in the world, and yet you might have a different father. You might actually be a twin and a half-sibling at the same time. And I think I was interested in that question in part because I had grown up with a brother who wasn't really like me in many ways, um, and yet we had to sort of perform um, this you know, idea of being perfectly aligned siblings. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was something that I was interested in when I first began writing a book. And so when I first started, I thought actually, you know, that this would be a story about Wilson and Winna, the twins, right. and what their life would look like growing up side by side on the farm, this black boy and this white girl who are twins. Um, and that is in part what the book is about, but then I began to become much more interested in their parents and the kinds of secrets that they would have had to uphold in order to um, present these twins the way that they did. Yeah, and secrets secrets is another, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, because um, as I made my list of who was who and how people were related, as I made my, my own little family tree as I was reading, I also then sort of cataloged their secrets as well. Um, because at first I thought, well, okay, here's, here's a community, probably only a small number of, of these characters are going to have something that they don't want other people to know. <laughs> I was, I was wrong. I was very wrong about that. Um, it seemed to me that everyone, practically everyone in this novel has a secret. And how many other people know um, know other people's secrets and, and the degrees of the varying degrees of complicity that are at work um, is quite intricate, I have to say, um, but also also very compelling. So why um, why secrets? Why secrets for not just sort of the Jessup family uh, and the Wilson family, but why secrets for this this whole community too? Well, I think from a fiction writer's point of view, it's sort of our bread and butter, right? Right. I mean, if everybody knows everything about everybody else with perfect insight and understanding, then you really don't have a story, right? I mean, for me, the most interesting kind of story is the kind that, you know, peels back a character layer by layer, and that the real, um, or at least one of the main um, ways that we can achieve that sense of reward in reading fiction is through interior access to a character and so the reader is getting an insight into that secret right that the, that the char other characters may not be and that's that's incredibly rewarding for mm -hmm. me as a reader and so try to replicate that on the page here I had a, a fiction writing professor named Helen Shulman who teaches at the new school now and um, she said in an early workshop that you know sometimes people share a secret between them and it's the biggest thing in their life and they never share it with anybody else and I just thought um, gosh that is would be an incredible um, kind of story to tell and I think maybe because of that I've always been interested in in secrets and, and many of these aren't really intentional secrets you know they don't think these characters go about 
trying to um, keep themselves from each other, but they're trying to protect themselves in, right. in some cases. Mm-hmm. They're trying to maintain power in other cases. You know, they're not just sort of mustache-twirling villains, I hope, who are you know, trying to lord um, secrets over each other, but they're trying to protect their identities and they're trying to, you know, maintain what power that they have. And I think that's true for the whole community, too, you know, where it was at this time where this community didn't have a lot of power. Um, many of the people in Cotton County were quite poor. They were farmers. In the Depression, they didn't have much left. There was a lot taken away from them. They had the food in the, in the field, and even that was somewhat precarious. And so, you know, I think in, in terms of these secrets and in other ways in the book, too, they're just trying to hold on to, to what they can, and often that means... Um, elbowing somebody who's who's next to them or um, trying to present or perform um, some sense of, of normalcy or some sense of power, even if it's really just a construction. Yeah, or kindness, if you, th- if you think about Oliver at the end, mm-hmm. um, which we sort of have to talk about obliquely so as to not give anything <laughs> away. But, yeah. but um, his, he seems to be um, a, a person who... I don't know, arguably, probably keeps keeps the biggest secret, but he seems to do so out of um, out of protection, but also also out of kindness. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and you know, his motives uh, have always been pretty good, although not always um, not always selfless. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but I think that is a moment of, of selflessness, where really he's not really serving anybody but himself in that moment where he decides to allow somebody to believe something to be true. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the kind of gift that we can give each other. I think he has the kind of rare opportunity to do that. Yeah, what he does is, is, a, is a kindness um, to allow, to allow that, that sense of belief uh, to, to continue, which is a, a very vague and horrible way of talking about it. <laughs> but, uh, but doesn't spoil anything. Yeah, exactly. Thank to be, you. To be continued, no problem. <laughs> Who was your favorite teacher? That is so hard to answer. That's the hardest, toughest question ever. No fair. That's like asking who's your favorite child or your favorite book or your favorite character. Yeah, that's but true. And I, I could have asked. I could have asked all of those questions. I know. <laughs> well, I love the question, though, because it's tough. And with regard to this particular book, I have to say that my favorite teacher was Rhonda Wilson, who was my 12th grade AP literature teacher. And she was a daughter of Georgia. She's no longer with us. She died a few years ago. But she um, just had the grand idea that it would be a good idea to uh, assign both Beloved and Absalom Absalom in the same year. And I don't think I could have written this book without having read both of those books, which I hope I would have done eventually. But they really formed me from an early age. I think I probably understood about 10% of them in 12th grade. Um, But uh, but I really was um, so inspired by fiction from this part of the world and um, told uh, from from a perspective of characters who were, you know, neither heroes nor villains. Um, but we're just caught up in this sort of epic mythos of, of the South. So I'm so grateful to her for, for assigning that book. I mean, I think that that's one of the many ways in which we, we, can, uh, we can show a, a care and belief in our students is just by believing that they can handle 
something like uh, like Morrison and Faulkner. So All I think once. about her a lot. <laughs> yeah, I thought about her a lot writing this book, and um, I'm really grateful to her. That's great. That's great. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Kim. 